0: We are beautiful, we're irrefutable, we are omnipotent, we're militant, resilient, we're autonomous, we are the consequence, we are consciousness, we are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us, and all will come after
1: Feral, adjective, especially of an animal in a wild state, after escape from captivity or domestication.
0: Alcatraz, Arab Spring, 1 billion rising. Freedom schools, the maroons, We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun. in the blood of our veins, liberation from Welcome to Feral, Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Athupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing White supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence, in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please... Practice excellent self and community care while listening. Where we can all attain emancipation from oppression, break the chains from Haiti to Tibetan worldwide. Don't forget the resistance in our roots and resilience in our breath. in the blood of our veins liberation
1: runs we are standing on the shoulders of the ancient ones.
0: I'm incredibly honored to be sharing this dialogue. Our guest is a scholar and activist whose work I've admired for many years. Year after year of my PhD program, when I was facing nauseating pressure to sell out, conform, and dull my commitment to my integrity and my politics, each time I heard her speak at conferences, I felt support in maintaining my radical politics within academia. This movement, Elder, has contributed so much to furthering intellectual spaces for visioning our collective liberation. Indeed, her brilliance, dignity, and bravery inspires me. Dr. Rabab abdul is the Director and Senior Scholar in the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies slash Race and Resistance Studies, and Affiliated Faculty in the Sexuality Studies Graduate Program at San Francisco State University. She is the co-founder and editorial board member of the Islamophobia Studies Journal for which she is co-editing the forthcoming special issue on gender, sexuality, and racism. She is co-author of Mobilizing Democracy, Changing U.S. Policy in the Middle East, and co-editor of Arab and Arab American Feminisms, Gender, Violence, and Belonging, winner of the 2012 National Arab American Nonfiction Book Award. American Quarterly Forum on Palestine and American Studies in 2015, a special issue of MIT Electronic Journal of Middle East Studies. Her work has appeared in seven languages, Arabic, English, Farsi, French, German, Italian, and Spanish in academic journals, including International Feminist Journal of Politics, Gender and Society, Radical History Review, Peace Review, and Journal of Women's History. Anthologies, including This Bridge We Call Home, New World's Coming, The 1960s and the Shaping of Global Consciousness, Shifting Borders, Americans in the Middle East North Africa, We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics, Writing Injustice, The Case for the Academic Boycott of Israel, and With Stones in Our Hands, Reflections on Racism, Muslims, and Empire." Social media outlets including Mondawais, Al Shabaka, Jadalia, and newspapers and magazines including The Guardian, Al Fajr, Women News, Palestine Focus, Voice of Palestinian Women, Christianity in Crisis, Palestine Al Zawra, Al Hadaf, and Al Hurriya. Professor Abdulhadi serves on the board of the Consortium de Recheré Inter et Transdisciplinarié en Proche et Moyen-Orient, the International Advisory Board of World Congress of Middle East Studies, and as a policy advisor of Al-Shabaka. She was a visiting scholar at the Institute for Women's Studies at Birzeit University in Palestine, the Afro-Middle East Studies Center at Johannesburg, South Africa, the Maison Méditerranée des Sciences de l'Homme, aix marseille Université, and by Museum of the Civilizations of Europe and the Mediterranean in France, the École des Hautes etudes et Social Sciences in Paris, and the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, in London. She received her BA, summa cum laude, from Hunter College, City University of New York, and her M.A., M.Phil, and Ph.D. in sociology from Yale University. She's the recipient of many honors and awards, including the Sterling Fellowship, Phi Beta Kappa, Yale's Prize Teaching Fellowship, and the Teaching Excellence Award of the American University in Cairo, the New Century Scholarship of the Fulbright Commission, and has been honored by several Arab and Muslim organizations, including receiving the Courage Award by American Muslims for Palestine, and Appreciation Awards by the Arab Women's Feminist Union in Nablus Palestine and the Muslim Youth Movement in Durban, South Africa. Before joining SFSU, she served as the first director of the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan in Dearborn. Dr. Abdul Hadi taught at eight transnational sites of higher education, including Yale University, CUNY Hunter College, the American University in Cairo, and Birzeit University in Palestine. At SFSU, she initiated and developed the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas, or Ahmed Studies, program, the only intellectual and research program of its kind in the world. Ahmed Studies has inaugurated the Edward Said Scholarship and the first collaborative agreement between SFSU and Anaja National University, the premier Palestinian academic institution of higher education. This is the first and only agreement SFSU has with any site in Arab and Muslim communities worldwide. Ahmed studies academic program offers such courses as Palestine, Islamophobia, Civil Liberties of Arabs and Muslims Post-9-11-2001, Edward Said, Arab and Arab American Feminisms, Comparative Border Studies, Palestine and Mexico, Queer Arab Diasporas, and Gender and Modernity in Arab and Muslim Communities. Dr. Abdelhadi is also the faculty advisor of the General Union of Palestinian Students, the Muslim Student Association, and the Muslim Women's Student Association. She also advises graduate and undergraduate students in academic and advocacy concerns. As a result of her scholarship and pedagogy, as well as her advocacy, Dr. Abdelhadi has been targeted by the Israel lobby industry and a McCarthyist-style campaign to silence her, dismantle the Ahmed Studies Program, and muzzle student activism at SFSU and other U.S. university campuses. Most recently, she is the only professor named in a lawsuit against SFSU and CSU administrators and staff. The case, filed by the Lawfare Project, will be dismissed, according to federal judge William H. Oreck, who held the hearing on the case on November 8th. She's currently leading an international multi-year project on teaching Palestine, pedagogical praxis and the indivisibility of justice. A multi site and multi year scholarly and curricular project that brings together Ahmed Studies with universities in Palestine and around the world, including an international conference and delegation in March 2018 to mark the 70th anniversary of Palestinian Nakba and the 50th anniversary of the SFSU student strike that led to the creation of the College of Ethnic Studies and inspired the decolonization of the curriculum. Professor Abdelhadi is a public intellectual who is equally committed to the principle of the indivisibility of justice. She co-founded the California Scholars for Academic Freedom, the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, and Feminists for Justice in and for Palestine, and has co-organized BDS campaigns in the Peace and Justice Studies Association and the National Women's Studies Association. She co-founded several community organizations, such as the US branch of the General Union of Palestinian Students, Union of Palestinian Women's Associations in North America, and the Palestinian Solidarity Committee. She was the first Arab or Muslim to be elected to the board of the New York Civil Liberties Union. She served on the board of the Brecht Forum, co-chaired the Third World Coalition of the American Friends Service Committee, And initiated and co-organized the 1985 National 26-City U.S. Tour on Israel and South Africa, the Apartheid Connection. She has been actively involved in leading Palestinian support for Idle No More, Justice for Michael Brown, the Movement for Black Lives, and Standing Rock. She co organized and led the first Indigenous and Women of Color Feminist Delegation to Palestine and has since led other delegations, such as the 2014 Academic and Labor Delegation and the 2016 US Prisoner Labor and Academic Delegation. In 2016 to 2017, she was a member of and US coordinator for the International Palestinian Campaign to Commemorate the Balfour Declaration. Thank you so much for taking your time and energy to be in dialogue with us tonight. How are you doing? Thank you for having me.
2: I'm, I'm okay. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. This is really great. It's exciting to be with
0: mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Thank you. To begin, to get going, could you share with our listeners, please, what the health of scholarship is on Palestinian liberation in the academy in the U.S. today. I think a lot of folks don't really know how politicized that situation has been for quite some time. So could we start off by talking about that a little bit? Sure,
2: I mean, Palestine studies in itself is 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 a very old field. You can trace it back to when Palestinians began doing the scholarship or when people began to do the scholarship about Palestinians. It's different periodization, right? And so, uh, some people, let's say, in, within American studies, uh, for example, or, and American studies also very loosely defined, so the people who probably um, do area studies, American studies, but don't consider it area studies because they think of the United States as the center of the universe, the whole Americanness. Um, Exceptionalism. Exceptionalism, also reifying settler colonialism,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, not questioning all of it, thinking of the quote-unquote, the founding fathers, what does that even mean, and so on. In the same breath, that people talk about feminism. So there, are, there were travelers, early colonist travelers, to Palestine, either part of the travel in general or part of quote-unquote, going to the Holy Land and they would write memoirs or comments and so on, but they were travel, I would say travel journals, that were not necessarily about Palestine, but it's considered to belong in American studies. It hasn't even gotten what we call Palestine studies field. Palestine studies, when you think about Palestine studies today, and I will say this and I will put it in parentheses, and then we can discuss it. Uh, Palestine studies, you'd think of the, the let's say the intellectual, place for it would be something like the Institute for Palestine Studies, the Journal for Palestine Studies that has been going on for a very long time and it has been attacked multiple times. In 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon, they destroyed the the records. They stole a lot of the records, the Israeli military, and also they destroyed all the records of the Institute for Palestine. And this has happened multiple times. So every single time you see an Israeli attack, there is appropriation of whatever is available, and they'll take more. Some people will say Palestine studies is also part of when the British colonial powers were colonizing Palestine. Some people would refer to it as mandate. I'd rather not use the mandate because the mandate, this is the term mm-hmm. that colonists refer to. It, and it basically normalizes colonialism by saying that they had a mandate. They didn't right. have a mandate. The Palestinians not given a mandate. It's true that the League of Nations gave them a mandate, but who was in the League of Nations yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. So it wasn't really representative of the world and so on. And even the United States, the more the United Nations, the more uh, um, decolonized countries, and put it in parentheses as well, but still decolonized countries join, mm-hmm. the, the, the politics of it shifts, the For General example. Assembly and so on. So even that in itself also needs to be taken into consideration. Now, in terms of Palestinian scholarship itself, Palestinian scholarship that has to do with uh, uh, pedagogy and scholarship and advocacy. Mm -hmm. talks about that. Yes, it has been very much under attack. It has been ever since the question of Palestine emerged. So whenever you talk about Palestinian resistance uh, to uh, British colonialism, to the Zionist uh, immigration and uh, the quote-unquote Judaization of land and labor and so on, you will see people who are trying to write and trying to talk about it and so on. It's also, you, at the same time, you also see the colonial narrative, mm-hmm. the construction of a colonial discourse, that the way they tell the story of any events in Palestine, it's always a story of subjugation, submission and defeat. Mm-hmm. And it is not accidental. The mm-hmm. reason this is the story is told that way is because it has a purpose to subjugate, to tell, send a message to the colonized people that you'd better not do it because you're going to fail anyway. So why are you doing it? Why are you resisting? Why are you staying put on their lands? Whatever you're going to do, you're going to get defeated, so you might as well just pack it up and go. And to justify to the colonists, what they are doing is that, look, this is history, mm-hmm. like bygones be bygones and to let the rest of the other people of the world is that this is not a struggle that's worth supporting. Mm-hmm. So there is there are political agendas and whenever people say there are no political agendas, every academic project, every intellectual project is has a political agenda. Sometimes mm-hmm. the agenda is outed, right. but sometimes the agenda is part of the status quo. Right. So it's so normalized that people don't think of it mm-hmm. as an issue and then they think of anybody who's challenging the status quo as contra Right, and I say, but actually, the status quo is quite controversial because yeah. it's, a, it's a status quo of injustice, right? Right. So it, there is, so there has been attack. In, but I think it all has to do with the way we think about the production of knowledge itself. The mm-hmm. project of production of knowledge itself. For what? Mm-hmm. To whom? Mm-hmm. Who is producing knowledge? Who is producing knowledge about whom? To what ends? What do we do with the knowledge we produce? Where are we producing knowledge? Is it only informal? settings and the academy or is this knowledge that's being produced everywhere wherever we are in the prison in the street in the community centers in formal and informal classrooms whether you have formal education you don't have formal education is it being transmitted orally through Mm -hmm. oral culture Mm -hmm. because people either people have participated in oral traditions historically or because they don't want to be writing certain things because they don't want to make it accessible to Mm -hmm. people who are colonizing them, Mm -hmm. or because they simply do not care about having to document everything because they have nothing to prove. Mm -hmm. So there is multiple ways in which this knowledge. So yes, there have been a lot of attacks in general. So
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, Thank you for sharing that history. It's so helpful for folks that might be new to thinking politically about knowledge production. Um, And on that front, naming, because we are having this conversation on Turtle Island, right, in the settler colonial U.S., so this is a really specific place to be on a university campus engaging in this dialogue. Could you share a little bit about the way that that context informs how people understand, for one, Israeli settler colonialism, so being in the heart of American empire, so to speak, the connection between those imperialist projects.
2: Yes. Well, first of all, because of the ways in which the United States was founded as a nation state, settler settler colony built on the the genocide of indigenous people, the kidnapping and and the enslavement of African people, the Exclusion Act the continuous waves of suppression and oppression that have happened against anybody who tries to resist the, the, the dominance of the nation state. And if you think about what's, what the Israeli state, it's a very similar project. It's a very similar, not everything is exactly the same, and of course we really need to be very careful in comparative analysis, so we're not conflating the two mm-hmm. things together. Every context has its own specificity, but we are talking about a species of settler colonialism, Mm -hmm. let's say. So within that, there is a certain affinity between what's the Israeli settler colonialism and the U.S. settler colonialism. So when it is not only political, in the sense that it is when there is this administration in in office in the White House or that administration is it Democrats or Republicans and so on, because at the bottom of it, there is something, what is it called, it's not what we call it, they actually call it the Judeo-Christian tradition values. And it's very interesting because we're talking about Palestine, the home of many monotheistic religions, the home supposed to be the Holy Land, it's supposed, but that's not the reference point. Mm-hmm. The reference point is actually the settler colonial project's understanding mm-hmm. of the relationship of people to the land, to people, to spirituality, the religious aspect of it, and so on. So then they concoct this whole thing, and then that becomes, let's say, the ideological basis for how people understand what's going on in Palestine. When I say people, I'm talking about the people who buy into and participate and are invested in the U.S. settler colonial nation state. I am not talking about the people who are on the grassroots who are contesting that, the indigenous communities, the communities of color, poor, marginalized communities. I'm not talking, that's that. But there is that, there is kind of that given. So you're always having to work against that in order to be able to produce what we call justice-centered knowledge production. So, A, you have to contest when people say, for instance, Palestine. The Palestinian Declaration is exactly like the U.S. Declaration of Independence, and we say no. No. Mm-hmm. The Israeli Declaration of Independence is like the U.S. Declaration right. of Independence, but right. the Palestinian is not, because Palestinian's Palestinian declaration is about liber- liberatory, emancipatory mm-hmm. project, mm-hmm. while this is about taking and basically putting up a flag and saying this, this land is ours, when it's not. It's, it's, it doesn't belong to the colonists, it belongs to the indigenous people, and the fact that they've slaughtered a lot of indigenous people still does not make it. It still makes it indigenous stolen land. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So there is this kind of normalization of it that's being chipped away. When you are talk about people who are producing radical scholarship that challenges settler colonialism, that challenges what suppresses, that challenges imperialism and racism and colonialism, but that is there. Okay, so that's that's part of it. The other part of it is the ways in which the United States historically also has. Uh, pre-produced the Zionist story narrative in which a, the United States did participate in closing the door to many Jews who were escaping from the Holocaust rather than mm-hmm. opening up the US and, and European countries and thus people who were trying to settle had no other place to go but Palestine because Palestine has porous poor borders mm. and because British colonialism was controlling mm. Palestine and because the Zionist movement had relationship and very strong ties with the colonialist and imperialist powers, so that's, ergo, that's what ha- what happens. So that is part of it, but also part of it is because of the settler colonial ideological roots, if you will, or epistemological roots of the United States itself. The Zionist narrative works; <laughs> then it's very easy to reproduce and mention it, and so on. So it becomes the Zionist interpretation of the history of Palestine. What's going on becomes the easiest. Part two. So I think I think actually this is, the, this is the thing that we need to work against mm-hmm. because denormalizing injustice mm-hmm. becomes mm-hmm. big part of the project of Palestine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot talk about Palestine without talking about that. So this is, and it's not an accident, by the way, that academic institutions, for instance, that have begun to challenge and ship away, and challenge all this dominance of white supremacy, settler colonialism, and so on, let's say for the Indigenous and Native American Studies Association. Right. Where you're talking about the American Studies Association that challenges this whole empire notion. Mm-hmm. You talk about the Asian Ameri- Association of Asian American Studies, mm-hmm. uh, the National Association of Chicano-Chicano Studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about all the, the peace and justice studies association, mm-hmm. National Women's Association, wherever people have been challenging that and pushing forward a different kind of scholarship that's accountable to communities, that's actually talking about why is it that we're doing what we are doing that is accountable to public, to, to the notion of a public university, that education should not be actually paid for. It should be free. It is a collective social right It's not, it's not a private. So when, you're, when you see these spaces that are connecting the question of justice with the question of knowledge production, that's where you have uh, openings for Palestine. Mm-hmm. And it's not accidental, it makes actually right. perfect sense, that's where, where it is. And when you have colonialist, militaristic, uh, neoliberal, capitalist ventures and so on, that's why you don't have a whole lot of space for Palestine. It may be enter in and exit, but it's very sp- temporary, <laughs> it's very tentative, it's very right. ad hoc, right. it's accidental and it's exceptional, right. and it's, it's isolated and it's Erratic. It's not really consistent. It's not so. It does happen here and there. But wherever you see people, including if you think about like, church communities, where you think about uh, synagogues, where you mm. think about any other religious communities that are going, that are built, wherever you see them challenging injustices and mm-hmm. working on justice, you will see openings for Palestine. It right. makes sense. It, right. it makes perfect sense that it is about Palestine. Is about justice, yeah. mm-hmm. and it challenges
0: all these boundaries. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in some of those spaces, Um, when you see a sort of backlash to these sort of intellectual openings, to be more honest, historically, Mm -hmm. particularly in terms of being able to name a critique of settler colonialism here or there, or the interconnections between, what are some of the tactics of censorship then, or of backlash Mm -hmm. um, that you have observed and or in your own experience with your own scholarship?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that have been going on is this attempt to really silence any possibilities of anybody speaking up. So the, 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 the pro-Israel Zionist groups, which I call the pro-Israel lobby industry, because mm-hmm. it is an industry. Yeah. We are not talking about a couple of grassroots no. cottage industry. No. We're talking about an, a very well organized, very well funded, funded by the likes of Sheldon Adelson, the Koch brothers the bradley foundation the koret foundation sabban i mean people are not really nice at all and they have a very nasty racist agenda okay and their goal is to basically shield israel from any kind of criticism and they link up and they buy, build upon the ideas that we've, we've just been talking about the whole question of the us settler colonial Project and racist, white supremacists and so on. So what they try to do is basically, it's not even, it's not even having different opinions. It's actually not allowing any dis- debate whatsoever, because the minute there is debate, people debate. Some Palestinian narrative is going to come out, or a Palestinian narrative comes out. But if you silence everything, you cannot have any possibilities of reaching anyone. And then what is happening is the only story that the history produces is the one in the media is the one that's coming out of the White House, that's coming out of Washington, that's coming out of hegemonic spaces in the U.S. So the attempt is to actually silence any possibility at any cost. So we do know that there has been, that it is not a secret. The pro-Israeli groups actually make it very public, is that their intent, whether they are using the legal, the way in which the lawfare project has sued California State University, San Francisco State Administrator staff, and me, and specifically really the the attempt is to silence Palestinian scholarship, uh, pedagogy, and advocacy at San Francisco State University, what they have been doing in multiple other places, what they have been doing through uh, these uh, trying to pass laws in the Congress against BDS, or whether they are trying to shut up student activism anywhere and so on. It's all this attempt is to basically not allow any kind of debate. It is not. It is not specifically to to say what, what stories they like. It is not allowed. Anything is not allowed because once you begin, you be debate, you debate, you mm-hmm. discuss, and then there is this hegemonic stuff that's going on. So they have been trying uh, very actively to do so. One of the reasons that they are able to do it at a place, for instance, like San Francisco State or other public schools. Is because there is defunding mm. by the states sure. of public education. So, what should happen then is that people who are stewards of these public institutions should actually go back and demand that the states fund public education. Rather than doing that, they turn mm. to start to raise money from private donors. When private donors come in, they come in with their agenda. And one of the strongest agendas is the pro-Israeli agenda. In our case, at San Francisco State, for example, it is the people who, are, who come and say, we are going to donate money to the university, and we will take it back. For example, in uh, spring 2016, the Coret Foundation, which funds such groups that stand with us, which is a very strong pro-Israeli group, and so came and gave, said to San Francisco State University, we're going to give you $1.5 million dollars. And then they said, oh, we went, we're going to take away the money, the point, and they did. Took away the point, if you are not going to discipline Palestinian students, because a whole coalition of students went and protested the visit to campus by the racist mayor of occupied Jerusalem near Barakat. Mm-hmm. And as a result, well, the San Francisco State began to actually tighten the squeeze against Palestinian students, uh, refuses to support the Ahmed studies program, refuses to reinstate our faculty lines that are part of my contract. When I came to San Francisco State, this is signed in my contract, and it's actually promised that the university made to the community. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not just a wish they actually mm-hmm. made, made, made a commitment to the community, and it's, it's a contract. And they, they would refuse to do that. They refuse to support the program. They refuse to give us a budget. They refuse to give us staff. I mean, it's, it's a very constant struggle. And part of it is because they are being, they are complicit with the pro-Israeli groups that would like to shut up Palestinian scholarship, activism, and advocacy on campus. And at San Francisco State, they are really troubled by the Ahmed studies program, because mm-hmm. we have a program now, and we are, the program, it's a minor, it was, has been approved unanimously by the Senate, and we have 22 courses. Our courses are general education, which means any student, has to take one of the courses as part of their requirements to graduate. And our courses are very exciting. Students like to learn. I have no spaces in my classes. I, even I put a waiting list, it gets filled up. Students want to add and so on. And I say to the university, you should really add more courses, you should hire more people. Students want to learn about Islamophobia. They want to learn about Palestine. They want to learn about Arabs and Muslims. You are shooting yourself in the foot by not doing that. But that's not being allowed, and what is happening is that it's the implementation of this pro-Israeli lobby industry of trying to crush not only activism on campus, but the scholarship that opens up spaces for students to critically think, to evaluate what's going on, to learn, to know more about an issue that the the, the mainstream media and the hegemonic media does not allow for, does Mm -hmm. not make it possible to do. If there is the attempt to silence any kind of student activism, there is an attempt to silence people who are activists in the community, there is an attempt to criminalize even people's ability to boycott, which is a tactic that movements have used for so many years, not exceptional to the Palestinians, again. It's not, and it's not only South Africa. It's also been used in the US. It's used all the time. People mm-hmm. do it all the time. If I see somebody abusing somebody at a grocery store, I don't go back again anymore. That's boycott. Okay. I boycott them, and I ask other people to do so. Right. People do yeah. this all the time. So what's going on is not really exceptional. It's not new. It's not even the most radical thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's just speaking your conscience. That's, that's mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. basic, and that is not allowed either. And then this, the problem is that with, with what's going on with Ahmed is that This is an institutionalized program that is very popular, that the students love. So they would like to shut that down. They cannot come and say, we're going to shut down an academic program, but they do everything. They target me, they put up posters that equate me, that call me a terrorist, that call me Jew-hater, that basically smears me and vilifies me and bullies me, that's an incitement to violence. They raise, they have Twitter campaigns to demand that we break the agreement that we have with the Palestinian University and Najah. I mean, they have been doing the, every single thing we've done, they've tried to undermine it. The Edward Said scholarship, they tried to stop it. So it is continuous. Mm-hmm. Any, anything that has happened that actually really exciting for students, it's exciting for the community, it's exciting for the faculty, they would like to stop it because it brings up and it exposes right. what Israel is doing, and it brings more support for the whole project of Palestine as a project of justice. So, mm-hmm. they, yes, this is, this is what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Could you
0: elaborate on the way that this concept of terrorism and then also anti-Semitism are being weaponized amidst this broader yes. conversation? Yeah.
2: So, the lawsuit that the lawfare has, which is, which is the group that calls itself the legal arm of the pro-Israel community, and actually they say that their goal is to make the enemy pay. Their executive director, Brooke Goldstein, said that that the goal is to make the enemy pay. In the same speech that she said that San Francisco State is one of the main targets. And so they want to make the enemy. People pay for their viewpoints and for what they want to do. And in the lawsuit that they filed on June 19, 2017, that names it basically they accuse, they accuse the university, they accuse me of uh, having being inherently anti-Semitic because there is criticism of Israel. And they try to actually also Accuse me of terrorism because this can whip up the whole notion of the war on terror and the ways in which, in the dominant imaginary, the Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians are constructed as bombs waiting to go, right. potential bombs waiting to go, as guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around, right? So, when that is already constructed, that becomes very easy to elicit and whip up. Mm-hmm these kind of hostility, Islamophobic, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian. So that's one aspect of it, the whole question of, the, of terrorism and the war on terror. In terms of the whole question of anti-Semitism is that it is a false, also bogus, uh, charge that also has been dismissed by the judge. Mm-hmm. So I'm not the only one who thinks that. And that has been also multiple investigations, including by the university, of, for instance, the student protest against Mir Barakat, that independent investigator that the university hired came out and said that this was a protest that was against Nir Barakat and it was against Israel and it had no violence, that didn't involve any violence and it was not against Jewish students or Jewish people and that the minute Nir Barakat finished talking in the corner, the students left. This is the independent investigator that the university has hired.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So it is all of this stuff is, is, is bogus. The whole uh, accusation of me as being anti-Semitic and so on has been refuted multiple times, including by hundreds of Jewish scholars and activists with whom we work, and I say we work because this is part of the Palestinian struggle. It's a part of the Palestinian struggle for justice. It is not an accident that half of the students and students for justice in Palestine are Jewish. It is not an accident that many Jewish people do not want Israel to speak in their name, or Zionism to speak for them, and they contest historically and contemporarily the Zionist narrative that actually says that this is, it equals. Israel, Zionism, and Jewishness are the same. And they say, no, it is not. It has never been from 100 years ago until today. There has never been an agreement, even where Herzl came out with the idea of Zionism, there have always been contestation. Actually, the anti-Zionists were... Had, lo- had more support mm. among Jews around the world than mm. the Zionists mm. did, okay? Mm. Until Zionism linked up with colonialism mm. and imperialism. Mm. We know the rest of the story, right? Mm-hmm. So it is the might makes right? But historically, this is part of the movement. I mean, there right. are, it, it makes sense for a lot of Jews to be part of the movement for justice in, and for Palestine because also, A, they are being claimed by the Zionist groups who claim to own Jewishness, and they say, we don't, no, we disagree, okay? This is not, you can't speak for us. Do not dare go kill Palestinians, take their land, uh, colonize them, occupy them, put them through military occupation and so on, and say, you're speaking my name. No, you're Mm -hmm. not speaking my name. No, Mm -hmm. you're not speaking my name. So people are very clear about that. So it's part of actually speaking for justice, and in building the whole project for justice in and for Palestine. Of course, it takes many, many people who come into it. it is not just a, it's not just a Palestinian project. It's not a special interest project for Palestinians. It's a project for everybody. Just like the question of justice against police brutality, against settler colonialism, against white supremacy. It's a project for everybody. White supremacy is not a, be opposing white supremacy. is not a project for black people. It's a project mm-hmm. for everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. is offended by racism and discrimination. should be offended. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be. It, and it's not the property of we take leadership from the right. black community. We take leadership when, we, when people are organizing around Standing Rock from the indigenous people in Hawaii and elsewhere. But it cannot only be people who are involved in the struggle because this is a struggle beyond all of us. This is a struggle for humanity. Mm-hmm. So people are participating in it. So they try to muddy the water by saying, by equating Jewishness with Zionism and with the Zionist project. And even if you look at the lawsuit, it's very interesting, from even epistemological analysis viewpoint, you will see how they will start talking about Israel. Then they talk about, they'll add in the Jewish students, then they'll add mm-hmm. they start talking mm-hmm. about the Jewish state. So all of a mm-hmm. sudden it's not about Israel and Zionism anymore, it's about the Jewish state and about Jewishness. Right. And that's not what it is, and people see through it. Right. People see through it, the supporters, the people who are supporting me in the campaign, The hundreds of thousands of people who are supporting me see through it. My lawyers see through it, the judge saw through it. The problem is that they have the resources and they have the power and they think that might mix right. And they think that they can intimidate and they can silence and they can bully and they can try to subject me to all all of these things. And they are trying, but they do not realize that we do have a huge movement that says no to this, that's not okay, that people come and rally and are very supportive and say, no, we are going to be supporting my struggle in that lawsuit. They're going to be supporting the students' struggle and their right to organize. They are going to be supporting our right to the Ahmed Studies program because actually the university really needs that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Many, actually, we need hundreds of Ahmed Studies programs in order for us to be able to uh, stu- to, to, to organize against Islamophobia. against. <laughs> and, uh, this is how you do it. You educate, you teach, you build institutions. That's how you do it. It doesn't just happen because somebody woke up in the middle of the night and said, okay, I'm not going to be racist anymore. Mm-hmm. This is how people get challenged into all of these things. So they would really like to silence it, and this is how they use They use anti-Semitism, a cynical misuse of anti-Semitism, which is actually quite damaging because then when real incidents of anti-Semitism happen, you want to take them very seriously and you want to fight against them. And when they try to muddy the water, they actually undermine the struggle. Anti- and this is not... I'm not... Just saying that. This is sure. groups like Jewish Voice right. for Peace, all, many intellectual Jewish intellectuals, and, and writers and activists. People say that all the time. The Lawfare Project has been fighting tooth and nail through the, this mega law firm, 1,000 lawyers that are representing them pro bono, to prevent an amicus brief written by scholars of Jewish studies mm. to support me. Of course. They do not want it to be admitted to court. They fought so sure, much, into it. of sure. course now we have no case because mm. the judge threw their case out of right, the window. Yeah. But they really they fought so hard not to allow that to happen because to allow that to happen. Or they also in court they dismissed Jewish Voice for Peace. But they said, oh, this is that the Jews were excluded and so on. And the judge said to them, well, what about the Jewish Voice for Peace? And they said, oh, that's a group that's anti-Israel. It is a Jewish group, right? You do not own Jewishness, mm-hmm. and so these are issues are coming up and challenging their very notion of their dom- domination and hegemony right. over what it is. And people are saying to them, before I am saying it, many Jewish people are saying to them, "No, you do not. You do not represent." Mm-hmm. But they try because they also want to take advantage of the fact that they have their man in the White House. Mm-hmm. They have the the power today and so on that they can try to get many things passed, like laws and so on. But people see through it, and and, and people do not accept this very nasty uh, bullying and intimidation that's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: I wonder how many folks off university campuses understand how tactical these sort of campaigns are that are being waged throughout the academy in the U.S. and elsewhere. It's one thing to understand, say, in terms of Hollywood propaganda or in the corporate media, how so often the Zionist lobby tries to conflate any critique of Israel with anti-Semitism. And having Israeli settler colonialism monopolize a Jewish identity, like you're Mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. uh, And I would love for more people to understand how damaging that is to knowledge production, how that forecloses our capacity to critically think, as you're saying, in so many different areas, even for folks that are interested in a sort of Liberal concern about academic freedom um, at the outset to
2: understand how much is at stake. It's a witch hunt. It's McCarthyism. It's policing thought. Yep. They are policing. They're trying to police thought. They are trying to intimidate people not to be able to do what they want to do. They, uh, when they make these accusations against me, they are also trying to take me out of commission. They are trying to keep me busy and they trying to keep me and it's very interesting because for instance the lawsuit they filed it on June 19th when we were on summer recess mm. when faculty and students on summer recess of course designers mm. groups can afford mm. because the staff, sure. staff and they yep. have resources they yep. can do whatever they want but we work as volunteers all of us are volunteers and this is for us the third or the fourth thing we're working on it's <laughs> not even our life my, my livelihood is my teaching my work. And then also I'm advocating, as speak up, I organize, I do support students, advise them, and so on. So they come and they file the lawsuit right after students and faculty have gone on summer recess. So I have to tell you, honestly, for me, it was a bit difficult to reach out to my colleagues because I was thinking, nobody reaches out to anybody in the summer. People. That's when people go. That's when they take care of their families. that's when they go on vacation, that they take care of health, write whatever they wanted to write throughout the year. They haven't been able to do, especially if you are at a public institution right. where you do not have the resources or the support of the research funds, or whatever. And they there. It's very. It's always timed around the same time. This is the same thing that they have done back in 2013, for instance, when they launched a campaign against me, against Ahmed, and against the students. The event that they claimed to be in question was November 6th. They waited until November 18th, mm. the week before mm. the fall break Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. right. in order to do it because then they can actually write 100,000 emails, everybody writes and so on. It takes us a while to organize ourselves. And mm-hmm. We know that. It mm-hmm. takes, we, we do organize, mm-hmm. but it takes a while because we do not have the resources. That they do. And, for, right, for, and the, that's the reason why we of are course. still, yeah, of they still dominate, right? Mm-hmm. And so they do that. If the timing is very, very interesting how they do it and what they are doing it. For example, the, the, actually, the attack in, in 2013, 2014, I believe, was intentionally uh, aimed at undermine and not allowing the Ahmed program to breathe, because we didn't have a program by the time we had an initiative. Mm. We were building the program, we were trying to develop courses, we were trying to make the courses general education. Uh, When I came to San Francisco State, the university had placed a moratorium on academic programs because they were revamping the baccalaureate program. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So we could not get things happening yet, right? So everything was being frozen. So the classes would be small and so on. And then once we realized that this is unfrozen, we started, right? right? And so when they made the attack, we were in the process of institutionalizing the program. We were in the process of getting GE certification for our courses, so students across the university will take it, not only students who are specializing in ethnic studies in the college, and so on. But we, we also we were we were beginning to work towards the agreement with Najah National University, and then we started putting the Edward Said scholarship together. So it was timed, and then of course they had already pressured the other Zionist group had already pressured the previous university president to cancel our searches because the student hosted Omar Barahouti, one of the co of the BDS movement after the Israeli war on Gaza in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. So the university president has already been pressured and he was a willing participant, canceled our searches and proceeded to delete the budget of the faculty lines. Mm-hmm. So they had already reduced the program to one person, me. Mm-hmm. The program does not have budget, does not have a staff, unless I raise the money. Right. And this is how it would work out. And it's, it should not be that way because we're not buying ourselves a program. This is a program that benefits all the students, that benefits the university. It's actually necessary. Right. So by them attacking me, what they were trying to do is that basically if you take her out, there's no program. Mm-hmm. that's that's very clear so we continued and the, and I, I, since I came to San Francisco State I've, I've, I came to San Francisco State I was heavily recruited I came because I also people in the community had a lot of trust in me I have credibility in the community they wanted San Francisco State wanted the scholar of Palestine who also has credibility in the community so they did an international search and I was the person who was offered the job and negotiated and so on and so forth so I came here and I drew on the community. And so whenever we were having discussions what they want to do with the program, or so, I invite people from the community to come. And when I say the community, I'm talking about communities. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people in the Japanese-American community, in African-American, in Jewish-American, in indigenous people. Uh, Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, South Asian, Latinos, from all com- communities, because we are a community of justice. So people will come and will give feedback and will say, OK, you change this this way, do this this way. And then wherever we have public educational programs, we're always bringing people together and speak. Speakers are always drawn from activists and academics. So it's, these boundaries are basically like dissolved in students' minds. They're not constructing them in their, mem- in their imaginary. And so, we've always depended and we've always relied upon the support of our communities. That has happened when we built the program. That has happened since the program has been starved. And this has happened also on the lawsuit. And when you think about on November 8th, there was no space in the courtroom for people to sit because it was all our supporters sitting there to the point that the judge had to move the fair lawyers and tell them to sit in the jury box because mm-hmm. there was no space because we had people from everywhere and it showed the coalition that we have. And so we do have, we have a lot of trust in the community and we also work and we are accountable to the community. So mm-hmm. we also report we talk to people, we say what we are doing, we ask for feedback sometimes. People say, well, maybe this is not really the right time. We say, okay, not, not a problem. We will do it some other time and so mm-hmm. on. And I advise all the students, the students groups, generally of Palestine students, Muslim Student Association, Muslim Women's Student Association, and as you have seen also a whole bunch of other students who are, mm-hmm. the Ahmed minors and so on, who stay in touch with me after they graduate. So we have a program that actually has uh, it, it has relevance. It is necessary it's timely, it is especially really important, and it serves a critical role. And people respond. Mm-hmm. The communities that we have, whether within and outside the university, people respond and are very supportive. So, and there's a need for it. And this is why we're talking about the whole question of knowledge production, social justice-centered knowledge production. It's very, very important. So they try to wipe that away.
1: Mm-hmm. And by
2: trying to wipe that away, I think it's really important to also link it up by undermining... Scholarship, Palestinian scholarship, advocacy, and pedagogy, they're also undermining the project of justice in the academy as well. Because its we're not the only ones who are targeted. They believe that if they target the Palestinians, and I'm saying, I'm talking about now the, the very strong, intimate connection between the right wing, the white supremacist right wing, and the Zionist groups. Right. There is a very, very strong, intimate relationship. Take it out. This promotes the, the corporate university. Right. This promotes McCarthyism against everybody. Any p- s- faculty who think about organizing for their union rights yep. will think twice before because they can see what cost, what is the price for standing up to these groups and so on. So it is not Stephen Salaita, for example, when, he, when they fired him from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the faculty was unionizing. Yeah. And very few people think about that, that this was also a message. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was about Stephen Saraita and about Palestine first, sure. okay, and mostly, mm-hmm. but also they were able to accomplish another goal on the side, right. and they always think about all these various goals. So you're talking about a connection that there is now many targeted faculty at the universities who are teaching about justice, who are challenging these things, whose who scholarship challenges not only their advocacy, their scholarship challenges, their teaching challenges, and so on, they would like to silence that. And this is why, for instance, the Koch brothers are very much involved. I mean, it's not an accident. It's not an accident where they go into the universities and buy themselves departments and and give grants in order for them to stop centers and so on to produce the kind of knowledge that they want to be produced. So this is a very big project. When we're talking about McCarthyism and we're talking about Awuchat, it is... It is very similar. It's basically silencing people and making it cost so much that people will be intimidated from joining. The good news is that we're here. We're standing. We're fighting. People are fighting with us. The students are fighting with us. We've won in court. Yesterday, Kansas also, that was a very important decision that has happened. It is hard. It's tough. But, I mean, what choice do we have?
0: Right. Absolutely.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems like a bit of a battle of attrition, and when you're dealing with lobbyists, precisely. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, right. And when folks are so well funded, yes. Right. Yes. And then you just strategically time those cautionary tales uh, to discourage dissenting opinions and/or approaches to and knowledge production. And use all sorts of bureaucratic
2: maneuvering and your, uh, all sorts of what they call microaggression this and that in order to really wear the person down and send the message to other people that this is what's going to happen to you if you dare challenge. Right. So it is, It's a, yeah, it's, it's rough. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, I know that next week you have a teach-in planned here at San Francisco State that in part as I have seen the event advertised, speaks to some of this history that you're sharing uh, about specifically San Francisco State's politicized history, um, and then also the department, I can imagine, or the program more specifically, and then the role of, whether it's Palestinian knowledge production on the part of faculty and or students and or the broader community.
2: Could you talk a little bit about that event, Uh, please? Yes, the tradition is called Palestine at SFSU, the spirit of 68 continues because we are inspired by the 1968 student strike at San Francisco State that demanded the decolonizing of the curriculum that was led by the Black Student Union and the Third World Liberation Front. And I'm very happy to say that they have already twice written a letter. They read a letter and supporting me back in 2014, and they just wrote a letter also after the lawsuit, and the strikers signed it, and so on. So, it's, it's, so we are inspired. We're inspired by that spirit that calls into question the colonialist knowledge and challenges it and says we really do need to decolonize the curriculum. We need to teach the kids the lived experiences of their communities so it is valued and appreciated and it is not dismissed and shocked aside. It's very interesting because the lawfare lawsuit and the Zionist groups claim that one of the main problems of what they call Islamophobia in the curriculum is ethnic studies. Mm. They, are, in the first page of the lawsuit, they talk about the 1968 strike. Mm. Yes, because the Amis this program is in the College of Ethnic Studies. We've historically mm-hmm. identified ourselves with the question of critical thinking and critical race studies and so on. So the, the teaching we are going to be talking about all of the stuff. Why is it that we do Palestine studies? Why is Palestine studies at the heart? of what we do and so on. We, we teach about Arab and Muslim communities, not just Palestine, but Palestine is the place we're being, we were being targeted. And by the way, it is also not accidental that the Islamophobia industry as well is overlaps with the Israel lobby industry. Sure. I mean, it's very, very... I, I've, I've finished the research paper for the Carter Center that's going to be part of the stuff that they're producing. They finally did a big thing on Islamophobia mm. in September. Mm. This is part of it, and I've studied and look, looked at the overlapping connections and so on, and I'm not the only one. There's many people who've done this as well. So we're, we're going to be talking about the history, the 1968 history. How, do we, how are we inspired by it? We're coming to the 50th anniversary of 68, right? We are going to be talking about what is the context for Palestine how it is connected to San Francisco State. What does What does it mean for San Francisco State to host the mayor of occupied Jerusalem? Does it mean that San Francisco State actually recognized that Jerusalem is Israel's capital even before Trump did? Mm. And is that okay? That's not okay. It's not okay for our public institution that's supposed to be accountable to the public and it should not be accountable to the donors. It should not, especially Mm -hmm. to right-wing. Nasty donors that are trying to silence us and push us. We will be talking about the whole question of policing the campus and uh, the, the state. We are going to be having testimonials from students, from faculty, from community who will be talking about it. We have a panel on the, the, how does anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, Anti-racism uh, um, and colonialism connect with each other, so we have people speaking about that and basically clarifying what does justice mean, all of this stuff. And then we will be able to talk about this big project that I'm very excited about, called Teaching Palestine: Pedagogical praxis and the Indivisibility of Justice. And this is a project that uh, talks about the whole scholarship here, and it talks about the scholarship in Palestine, and brings the two together in thinking about the decolonizing the curriculum in both places and we're partnering with the Birzeit University in Palestine. Birzeit itself, as well as the Institute for Women's Studies and the Ibrahim Abu Abouloghad Institute for International Studies. We're partnering with Al-Najah National University. We have partners in South Africa, in France, in Mexico, in Puerto Rico, in Chile, in Canada, and throughout many universities here. Our partners in the U.S. include Standing Rock Warrior Women and Black for Palestine, for example. So it's a very exciting project and we want to talk about how does teaching Palestine work? Not only in terms of scholarship, which is really important to think about the critical thinking that we were discussing a little bit ago, but also how does it, where does teaching Palestine happen? It happens in the prison, it happens mm-hmm. in the street, mm-hmm. it happens in the communities, it happens when, you are, when you're talking to somebody going to a film, it happens when you talk about the food that has been colonized and appropriate. It happens in multiple places. And teaching Palestine then becomes a metaphor for teaching about justice. Mm -hmm. It is not just Palestine. Mm -hmm. So it is not exceptional and it's not limited to Palestine. But it's really imagined as as a project of justice. And we're really, really excited about it. We have students, we have amazing abstracts that people have submitted to the conferences in Palestine. So you will be hearing more and more and more about that. The, the information, the update is going to always lag behind what we are producing because we <laughs> sure. don't have resources. Right. I mean, it's just a question of, kind of informing people of what we are doing, but we're really doing a lot and we're really excited about it. I mean, this past year, even amidst the attack on the agreement with al National University and the Horowitz and Canary Mission racist poster campaign, we proposed and got approved for two courses that are GE. One on the Palestinian mural mm. as art of resistance and one on Edward Said. Wow. So we are and our students are doing so well. They graduate. They do really well. They go on and they get fellowships at graduate programs and so on. So it's, I mean, it's something to be proud of. We do have we do have, uh, Mahmoud Darwish always says that there is something on this land that's worth living. Mm. And I would say there is something in this program that's worth working and investing in it and fighting for it. Because you see, you see what the impact that it has. And we are connected with, with a lot of other people who are part of this project. It's not, mm. it's not the individual, it's not my individual project. Yes, mm. I'm the only faculty member now. I'm the only person, staff, faculty, and so on. But we are really standing on the shoulders of amazing people in the past, and we also have many partners who are... We would not have been able to do the teaching next week. I mean, when you're here next week, you will see the many people who come from so all sorts of walks of life who are actually working with us right. and making it happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen because you cannot build a movement with one person.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: really a collective effort. It's a collective and it's a continuous Right. It's a continuous effort, and in the process of, of this uh, teaching, we're actually doing an oral history project about Palestine at SFSU. Wow. So we're, we're going back, interviewing people, asking people what their experiences has. Uh, one of my um, really great students, Salim Shadeh, who finishes MA thesis in May and uh, has been accepted to UCLA PhD program. And he was awarded the hood of the College of Creative and Liberal Arts when he finished his MA. He did it on the Palestinian organizing at Mm. San Francisco State. Mm. So he went and looked at a lot of the records. He interviewed a lot of people. But obviously, one MA thesis was not enough. And also, he was also under the gun and being attacked by Zionist groups as well. So he's continuing with that. But also, many people, there's so much to study. There is so many. The story of the mural alone is a story that, should take a book Mm -hmm. all the stuff that's been going on all the struggles that we've been uh, engaging in and and the accomplishments that we have done all of them should be shared. So this is something that we're going to be talking about and connecting it what happens in the Bay Area. So for example, we're going to have people who are going to come to speak to us, how the same groups who are targeting us in the university are the same ones that shut down the children's exhibit from Gaza at the Auckland Children's Museum. Mm. It's the same group. Sure, It's not It's not a different group. We're talking about the people who are in trying to prevent Vietnamese and Arabic from being taught in, in, school, in schools in San Francisco and trying to shut us down. I mean it's not accidental. Right. It is it is it is a concerted effort on their part, but we also have a concerted effort. We have a movement on our side. We have right. we have a big broader local as well as national and transnational movement. Mm-hmm. We have people who are following, supporting everywhere and everywhere in Palestine and South Africa, everywhere. So we you know it's the majority of the world supports Palestine. Sure. The US actually the US people more and more people learning about Palestine in the U.S., and it varies depending on which community you're talking about, are joining the rest of the world. It's, right. just, it's just lagging behind. Mm-hmm. It is, mm-hmm. it, the U.S. Is, not, is, is the exception. Absolutely. Okay. It's, not, it's not actually the, the rule. Mm-hmm. And so this is changing. This is also changing. And I think it's also why designers are becoming so vicious sure. and so nasty. Mm-hmm. They are they're unwilling to accept the fact that this is where things are at that there more and more people are realizing that justice for Palestine is a question of justice for all, and they should be supportive, and they are, they are unwilling to... This is, this is the arrogance of power. Mm-hmm. Power doesn't relinquish, mm-hmm. and doesn't mm-hmm. accept it, and, and it wants to punish anybody who challenges it. And this is what they are trying to do, so. You know, it seems as if a lot of folks in the
0: U.S. can typically approach learning about Palestine through so some sort of common tropes, whether it's, quote, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and oh. quote, or write a sort of IR, international relations approach, or this kind of area studies approach. Yes. Like, it's just a question of whether it is Middle Eastern studies and yes. or Near Eastern studies. Yes. But so far as teaching Palestine goes...
2: We're very uh, critical of those uh,
0: tropes. Right. Um, could you break down some of that a little bit and then yeah. also potentially share with our listeners the role that indigeneity could play as an alternative sort yes. of conceptual framing, precisely, thank you, um, and as an alternative to yes. some of those kind of dominant or hegemonic forms of storytelling. Well,
2: let me talk about first the whole question of when well, you we talk about Middle East studies. Thank Middle you. East studies, uh, we don't use the terminology at all. A, intellectually speaking, Ahmed Studies does not do American area studies or Middle East area studies. We do not do that. We realize that the concept itself, Middle East, is a colonial concept. Right. It's middle of the East to whom? That's right. Not to the people who are living in the region. And it's not near East either. Yeah. Because that's also a relative term to the people who are outside of the region. Right. So both of them are colonial. So we don't use them, we stay away from them. Uh, we also uh, do not do that kind of study that uh, that locks, let's say, Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims in a particular geography, right. because that simply doesn't work. Right. I mean, the, the, if you want to accept that, you have to accept colonial boundaries. Yeah. And who created all these boundaries anyway? It's right. a colonial force. So why do we have to accept that as a given
1: mm-hmm. when it
2: is all it was constructed? It is constructed. It can be deconstructed. Thank you. Anything. Right. So that, that is one of the main issues that we're talking about. We don't situate ourselves there. We talk about Arab and Muslim ethnicities and diasporas because we want to account for Arabs and non-Arabs in Arab-majority communities. So we discuss the question of the Kurds, the question of Amazigh, the question of Armenians, the question of many ethnicities in there. And we study non-Muslim and Muslim-majority. So we're not only talking about Muslims, we're talking about Muslims, Christian, Jews, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Sikhs, um, Buddhists, non-believers, any Zoroastrians, any kind of religiosity people have, and so on, to think about that. So we're studying communities. We do not study scripture, per se, and when San Francisco State hired me, they said Islamic studies. I said, no, I don't do the Islamic studies. You want to do Islamic studies, you need to hire a whole crew of people who do that, and not opportunistically, as has happened in the academy, that because there was a lot of money post 9/11, 2001, mm-hmm. people started saying we're doing Islamic this and Islamic that, and they weren't. They were just basically taking advantage of it. And we said, no, we're not going to engage in that game at all. So we study communities and we study people at home and their diasporas, however they define where home is and where diaspora is, and that shifts mm-hmm. all the time as mm-hmm. well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the journey is very, very important, and we define. Palestinians as indigenous people, indigenous to Palestine, we, I always say, whenever I speak, I always begin by saying, I recognize the indigenous people on whose stolen lands we convene. And it seems that this has been irking the Zionists recently because they have written a couple of articles about that. They are so bothered that I hmm. begin by saying, they, they mentioned it in, in two art, and then I, I received this nasty email from a Zionist person who says to me, how dare you, and so on, and so on. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, this is, why Why would you say that? Because this is, this is we are on, on indigenous stolen land. We are on indigenous people's stolen land. We have to acknowledge that. And I always say, we have to acknowledge that in general. We also have to acknowledge that, because I also, when people go to Palestine, I want them to acknowledge that as well. Right. And so... It is, it's really very important to, to understand what's the relationship of people with the land, and what's the relationship of the people who came after. The difference between the U.S. and Israel, if you think about, for instance, like the African-American experience, and let's say the Sephardic Mizrahi Jews in Israel, is that African-Americans did not come to this country of their own free will or being coerced like, Iraqi Jews and Yemeni Jews by the Mossad and so on, but they nonetheless immigrated. Here, people were kidnapped and enslaved. It's a very different situation. But here, there is a very similar approach to depriving indigenous people of their land, of their cultures, of their uh, spiritualities, of their, of their life, of everything, of their well-being, and appropriating their life, their food, their cultures, erasing the names, changing the names. I mean, every single time we went on a delegation to Palestine, and the indigenous people on the delegation were saw the signs, the telltales, because it was all there. It was all there. What was there? Either the villages, the Palestinian villages, the 532 villages that were all erased completely, or the villages that were not erased, but they were turned into artist colonies for mm. Israeli quote-unquote secular artists like ein the village of ein which is, I don't know, which is more violent. Mm. It's, it's really violent. It's horrible. And we're going to be actually, by the way, doing a, an event also this year, showing the film 500 Dunams on the Moon and mm. having a discussion about indigeneity Palestine and so on. We, you know, that's also linked up with our colleagues who are doing similar projects. And uh, so that's the the erasure of the names and changing the names. The narrative, the way it is told about Palestinians being the savages and the backward people and the indigenous people, the same that the whole colonial mission is a civilizing mission and that we are not engaging in civility. I mean, it's it's all the tropes, all of them, the way in which gender and sexuality is constructed and all, and a lot of the stuff we have today is is we're inheriting from colonialism, a lot of the rigidity. And the mm-hmm. fixity of gender and sexuality regimes, for instance, comes with colonialism, comes with, with at least with Palestine, for instance, comes with, with, with Victorian morality from the British. And it happened in India as well. I mean, this mm-hmm. is kind of like if you look at what happened in Egypt, India, and the, the way that they were passing laws, and all of this stuff is all colonial legacies. And then it tries to impose the new colonial
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, regimes onto the indigenous practices and and lived experiences that this was not what it is but then this this becomes a sensibility this becomes the unmarked category against which we will all have to be compared and so on so I think it's really really important for us to be able to learn engage be humbled by the people whose lands these are and this is one of the ways in which, as I mentioned the whole question of thinking about uh, uh, July 4th is not Palestinians November 15th July 4th is May 15th, the day of Nakba, when Mm. Israel was founded. Uh, We do not talk about thanksgiving because who's giving thanks to whom and where is the thanking and the whole myth about it and so on. We don't call the U.S. as a nation of immigrants because saying it's a nation of immigrants erases the indigenous presence on these lands and so on. We do not participate in the domestication of ethnicities and communities into Americanness and so on. We do not support all of these projects. We are very clear about mm-hmm. what does this mean. And I think this is where the connections with indigeneity, the connections with the opposition of white supremacy, the opposition to the statues when there, were, when there was a whole discussion after Charlottesville of all the you know, Confederate statues and so on. It seems kind of like, oh my God, this is Palestine all over again. There are so many things that are so similar And again, I don't want to conflate the experiences because it's not exactly the same, but there are a lot Mm -hmm. of similarities. And the ways in which these colonial and oppressive regimes borrow from each other, share knowledge with each other, exchange policing and torture practices and all of this. And it's not that it doesn't make sense. It makes sense that they do, and we do too. We also collaborate with each other, we talk with each other, we learn from each other, we share experiences. But also it reinforces and strengthens Mm. people to know that because when when you get isolated and when you get put in a little corner, there, the attempt is to make you feel crazy, whether you are an individual, to make you feel crazy, whether we talk about a, co- a collective psyche. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's both. It's kind mm-hmm. of you. You don't really know what you're doing. There is a different way of doing out. Why don't you get co-opted and so on and so forth? But actually, by by collaborating with each other, by expressing these solidarities, by engaging critical solidarities. I'm not talking about somebody, it's kind of like we're going around blind eyes and just, you know. No, but it's actually in a critical ways where we learn, we teach, we share, we critique each other, we engage in all of these practices and in, in praxis, in knowledge and in practice all the time, this is how we can go back and forth and, and then from each other and build a different world. And, and it's not going to be fast, and it's not going to happen tomorrow. It will not happen tomorrow. It will take a long time. But who said it was something easy? I mean, it took them a very long time to build these settler colonial projects. This will take us a while to be able to challenge them. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, it seems consistent with moving beyond the sort of liberal politics of inclusion mm-hmm. where you just sort of accept the terms of the debate as they have been set for you and designated yes. by an oppressive status quo, yes. as opposed to actually dramatically stepping back and doing the harder work of being yeah. able to interrogate those terms of the debate to begin with, and then actually share, you know, that might not be a part of your cosmology right. and or right. a meaning-making system or an intellectual right. tradition that you're actually conscious interested in promoting or perpetuating yes. so then sharing those alternatives right. which is definitely not the same as to invoke this you know tricky language of identity politics mm-hmm. solely entering into conversations based upon your identity as opposed to in tandem with a broader intellectual and political understanding
2: right. Right. Well I think one, one of the things that I think it's really really important that I bring up with my students a lot and in my own research and in my own work is that it's really important to keep remembering that people who are colonized and indigenous people do not do what they do because they need to worry about what their oppressors think. That's not the first motivation. You take what the people who are colonizing you are doing into consideration because not doing so means that you are going to lead your community to suicide. But that's not the first motivation. You do not do what you do in order to satisfy this or that and see that we are participating in this multi-neoliberal multiculturalism, multicultural that everybody eats everybody's food and everybody's going around with everybody's clothing and so on, which is a lot of appropriation anyway, and it's actually quite nauseating. But I think if we think about that and why people do what they do and how they think about it, and it always takes me about like Fanon's deconstructing the the Hegel's master-slave dialectic and says, yeah, well, Hegel says that the master and the slave need each other. And Fanon said, no. Nope. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) The master needs the slave, but the slave doesn't need the master. The slave needs to break the chains. Right. And I think it's really, really important to think about that. And it's also not to accept the things that are given to us which are not part of our sensibilities and don't make sense. Thank do you. Not, not only don't make sense, they're not actually reasonable. Right. They're not, they're illogical. Mm-hmm. Okay? They're illogical. But also they are intended to pacify, co-opt, and continue subduing the community. Yep. So if you do not challenge these things, what are you doing but delivering the people you're teaching, the young ones and so on, to become more docile citizens in the future?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you are, in effect... And not inadvertently, because I think we really need to be conscious about what we are doing, contributing yep. to the production of, of oppression. Right. So you we need to decide what is it that we're in it for. Thank you. What is it that we're trying to do? And it's hard. It's not easy. It's much harder to question everything and so on. And sometimes we don't have the language for it, because mm-hmm. the language we're using, the terminology we're using, the lexicon is all the colonial mm-hmm. stuff. And we're speaking in English too. Yep. And it's very interesting, actually, it's different sensibility. I know that when we even talk about in Arabic about certain things, and what do people say about certain... I mean, there's, all of this stuff is very much uh, connected. But let's say, stay with now, we're speaking in English as a medium that we're communicating through and so on. There are a lot of concepts that we don't really need to accept. And I think accepting them actually hinders the possibilities of liberation, Absolutely. rather than advance it. Thank it does you. not advance it, it doesn't right. advance it at all. Right. People think it may advance it, but it doesn't advance it. Sometimes when people say, live and let live, okay, you, there is one way of thinking about it, that you do not pick all the battles at the same time, which is fine, it's a, it's a question of survival. But it's different to say that it's a question of survival than to justify. And make the oppression functional. Right. It's very, very different. Both of them are very different from each other. I understand what survival means. I understand that you don't go and you kind of like um, a James Scott uh, book Hidden Transcripts. He talks about how when there is when when there is like extreme oppression, let's say you think about there is a storm and you bend, you let the storm pass, mm-hmm. but you know that there is a storm. Right. You yep. are not saying that your natural position yep. is bending. Yep. You're standing. Mm-hmm. When the storm comes, okay, yes, you don't mouth off. You don't come up and you say to everybody who's oppressing you, a policeman is going to be shooting you, say to them in your face or whatever. Of course, you put your hands up first thing you do, because it's a question of survival. But your natural position is not having your hands up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That is not some, that's not okay.
1: Right. That's, not,
2: that's not the way the order of things is supposed to be. That is the oppressive order of things that needs to be challenged. So you need to be conscious about it. What is going on? And at the same time, there is a way in which there is a survival of the community and the protection of the community and so on. So I'm not talking about being completely eco, just not taking into consideration all of these things, because that means that you're living in Lala land. But there is a difference between that and actually justifying the Absolutely. oppression, in order for us to say this is what it is, but the what it is. Right. And we need to name it what it is. Then we can figure out okay, so what do we do about it? Thank you. And that- what do we about it tomorrow? What do we do about it today? What do we about it in 10 days from now? In a year from now? What do we do about it if we have the resources? What do we do about it? We don't have the resources. You know? So there are multiple, there are survival strategies and survival strategies for communities, especially. And, and I think it's really also important because you've been saying it a lot, and I think it's really, really important, I just want to like highlight it, the whole question of the liberal and the neoliberal thought always assumes that people have choices. Mm. We have choices, but we have to, like Marx said, he said men, and I would say women, make their histories, but they do not make it as they choose, because we also have limited options. Right. We mm. never have, when people come to say, you choose, and at one point I used to have an administrator come and say to me, well, you really need to select. You need to choose. You need to pick and choose. Are you going to be focusing on teaching? Are you going to be focusing on your scholarship? Are you going to be focusing on advocacy? And I said, but I don't have, I can't choose. I mean, why should I sacrifice my scholarship? Because I'm being deprived of the resources to build the program. Why should I be able to shortchange my students? Because I'm not getting other faculty members and so on. And when you're saying to me, I have to choose, you're actually assuming I have a limited, limited and, and uh, infinite Options to choose. But actually, the more there is oppression, the less options that you have. The more access to power you have, the more options you have. So, yes, I do have options as somebody who has a PhD program and a professor and so on, but also I don't have as many options as somebody who's not being targeted every single day by Zionist forces who are intent to wear me out and to basically get me out of my job and close down my program and silence my students. I mean, these are not options. So when we talk about options, things are imposed upon us. I did not choose, I don't choose to be attacked, and I did not choose when the attack is going to happen. It's imposed upon me. It's imposed upon me. What do I do about it then? This is, this is the question. that We do not have these options, and there is this myth. Especially in the United States, the people have options. Oh, you get to choose. It's my choice. No, there is nothing of this. There is a program. It's set up. You get to choose between different options that are available. But the less power you have, the less options you have. And the more consequences mm-hmm. of whatever decisions you make. Mm-hmm. You make decisions, of course, you decide. But every decision will cost you more the less power you have. Right. And I think it's really important to under, because there is this everybody thinks the choice. Of, what choice? Mm -hmm. what choice are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to also
0: highlight that and underline it. Thank you yeah. for that. Cognitive dissonance runs so deep in people and is such an impediment to our collective liberation. many. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, wanting yeah. to believe yeah, yeah, so yeah. intensely yeah. that in this fraught, very limited <laughs> terrain yeah. that you have more agency than right. you do, I based upon this right neoliberal choice discourse, right? Yeah. Pepsi versus Coke, or yes, Republicans yes, versus right. Democrats, right. as choice right. and right. as, right. Right. as right. freedom, which right has to be contested. Exactly. Right. As one final question for you, I would love to hear a little bit more about, you spoke to regimes of gender and sexuality as they play into everything that we're talking about, um, the role that feminisms to invoke one language play in the work that you do.
2: Well, uh, I would say it plays in very contradictory ways because in one hand, colonial feminism and liberal feminism has played a very negative role. It played a role to maybe give options, more options, to white, middle-class, hetero, Anglo-American women. But it also disinherited and deprived a lot of other women of it. And colonial feminism has definitely sought to deliver recipes of rescue and saving to indigenous women, women of color, uh, women in colonized contexts, and people, actually, not just women. It also fixed genders, This is it. It's either this or that. And it's not, like I know in Palestinian society, and historically, it was much more fluid than it is after the contact with colonialism and colonial discourses and so on. And there are studies about that. And I've done some research, and I've done some writing about gender and sexuality and so on. I want to talk about the ways in which we can talk about critical, radical feminisms of justice. And this, actually, these terms of battles have come up more recently and it's very interesting because it's also on the right-wing side are also the same people who are suing me. Mm. So, uh, Brooke Goldstein and Amanda Berman who are the co-founders of the Lawfare Project. Amanda Berman is a co-founder of Zioness. Which is this group. Them. Yes, it's wow. very, very interesting. It's this group mm. that Zionist. stole the image of the black woman from South Stop. Africa Stop. Oh, and posted right. it as Zionists on their website. It's the same group that challenged the whole question of the broad context and really the creative sense of justice that, let's say, the International Women's Strike mm. of March 8th came out with. The attack against the March 8th uh, International Women's Strike was focused on several things. One is that why Rasmiya Oda, the Palestinian leader from Chicago who was deported, why was she one of the organizers? Number one. Two, why is the International Women's Strike called for the decolonization of Palestine? Three, why are they talking about dismantling borders from Palestine to Mexico? I mean, it's what, all of this stuff. Why is it mm-hmm. that National Women's Studies Association endorsed boycott divestment and sanction? And I, I was one of the main people that we were organizing a part of the Feminists for Justice and for Palestine intersection in NWSA. So there is a very direct, I mean, there is a very direct personal link mm-hmm. that actually affects me also directly. <laughs> and it also affects us mm-hmm. in the ways it is constructed. And it is the same liberal and neoliberal argument that basically says that you should only focus, you should stay, which is very racist too. Stay on your own community, focus on your own issues. Do not venture out. Because as women of color, as indigenous women, as people who are working on questions of just this doesn't concern you. You should only focus on your own little affairs mm-hmm. because you know your life doesn't really allow for it. Which is very racist right. because it really assumes that people in, in, who are fighting for their daily survival so don't think. Yeah. Don't think, don't care, do not are not concerned and so on. And actually the people who are don't think and don't and are not concerned are the ones who are the most selfish, who are the least <laughs> generous in their <laughs> donations and so on. I mean, these are studies. It's not even, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, right. it's, it's just straightforward statistical studies, okay, mm-hmm. that, that are a do, I have, you know, I don't like positivist knowledge and so on, but it's just out there. Right. So there is an argument that you should not venture outside. You should not, and it's a way to divide and, and rule right. and keep people from connecting with each other. I mean, it's right. a way to destroy the movement and say, yep. oh, why are you doing, what's this laundry list of demands and so on? Because we see things as connected. We see, we, I may not be struggling on every single struggle every single day, but I do see, and I will jump when I am called upon, because there is an urgent struggle in this place where I need to drop what I am doing and go there. Okay? And then I continue what I am doing day in and day. Because this is where my expertise is, where my this is where my, community, this is where my lived experience is, it makes sense, but it doesn't mean that I actually act as if I am not concerned. And it is the same ways in which it comes up again and again, you do not know what's best for you. You have no agency. I mean, look at the construction of this kid, Ahab Tamimi. It's mind-boggling. I mean, the way this, this kid is constructed, including by former Israeli ambassador to the US, Michael Oren, who, who said that they have a fake family. They're not Palestinians. Mm. Why does she have light blonde hair? Why is she wearing Western clothing? Right. Okay. And if she's wearing a hijab, they would say, why is she so oppressed and backward yeah, and docile right. and so on? I mean, damn if you do, damn if you don't. Exactly. And why I say damn if you do, damn if you don't? Only if you care mm-hmm. about how the oppressors construct you. Mm-hmm. If you, 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 can, you can never win. Right. And why should you even try? Mm. And to whose interest mm. doing these battles are? So the whole question of the construct, the way in which... Gender and sexuality regimes are constructed and the ways in which everybody is supposed to fit into their own prescribed role does not work for movements for liberation, it doesn't really work and it's not only about gender or queer or any kind of, anything, it doesn't really work. It doesn't work because these formulas are set up in order to keep people divided from each other, in order to keep people dominated. This is how hegemony works. Okay, they don't have to have military I mean of course Israel does but they don't have to have every single day shutting you up and holding the gun against you and so on they get you to participate without spending so much you know mm-hmm. like money on the daily mm-hmm. policing even though there is policing as well. Sure there's PR for that. <laughs> yeah but, but there is all of the stuff that's going on so it's it, it's the way it is constructed, so for us, what does this mean? Does it really, when there is this claim that, okay, all all liberation movements are oppressive, and women should not have anything to do with, and why are they, as if, as if women or queer people participate because they are opportunistic in order to only get out of it, not because they are themselves also feel that they are part of their communities that have been oppressed as well. It's, it's the whole logic of it is quite problematic, and then, some of our members of our communities go around reproducing this stuff and repeating it day and day you know, because our society is so misogynist. And I always say,
1: hmm, compared to whom?
2: Right. Okay, so is it exceptionally more misogynist? Or there is a reason to construct it as exceptionally more right. misogynist right. and exceptionally more homophobic mm-hmm. in order to, to be able to de-link us from mm-hmm. other people who are... Struggling for justice and in order to keep us at a place where nobody will actually touch us and make us nuclear material same, right same. and if we go beyond that and not even go beyond it, actually question it altogether and say there's something wrong with that. what does it mean and i don't know what does liberation in general mean for everybody I do know for the people I work with and the people I research for Palestine and for the communities I research, I know I know When at a particular moment something means something, and I know when something is awfully unjust. I know when Ahad Tamimi, the kid gets constructed, her parents get constructed as having parental deficiency, right? They don't take care of their children, they're cowards, Mm -hmm. they put their children in their front, they are irresponsible parents because Mm -hmm. they don't worry about their children and so on. Or that the kid herself is constructed as she is irresponsible, she just wants to do whatever it was. And I would say, that, OK, so where did the soldiers come from? Mm. Did she go to their military base, or they were at the door of her house? Mm-hmm. They injured her cousin, they killed her aunt, they imprisoned her father multiple times, they pulled out the trees that their families lived on. Did she go seek them out? They came and occupied her land. And what is she supposed to do? Stand up and say, please, beat me up some more. Quiet. So it's the way it is all constructed is also in itself quite problematic and the reproduction of it is quite problematic. And when people can say, No, no, she's a nice kid and she didn't she didn't slap us up, why? Why didn't it's okay for her to stand up for her rights? It's okay for her to actually see an injustice and say, This is an injustice. I am proud, I have dignity, mm-hmm. I am not going to accept being humiliated and stand by and say nothing and do nothing when I see an injustice being committed. And why is that so difficult to understand? Mm-hmm. And so I think when we look at all these various ways in which, for example, I'll give you another example. Muhammad Abu the kid who was made to drink kerosene and set on fire. The first news that came out from the Israeli police was that, that he was gay and he was killed by his family to cleanse his family's honor. Mm. And if his family did not have cameras outside their house to show that he was kidnapped by Zionists and killed, that story would probably continue. Sure. And so it's reneging responsibility, blaming the victim, Mm -hmm. constructing the Palestinian society as exceptionally homophobic uh, and sexist, Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and dissolving absorbing the sense of any kind of responsibility mm. classical colonial exactly secular, colonial oppressive tactics exactly right that's how oppression works right and they do it all the time again and again and again and so what would be the response to that one response would be no 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 we're not really homophobic or we are really very and we're struggling and we are supporting gay rights and so on sort of this apologist right way. and another way to say this, is, this this whole construction is wrong. Mm-hmm. This whole construction, there's something awfully wrong with it. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. a very racist, colonialist narrative that's colonial mm-hmm. feminist and colonial queer. Mm-hmm. And that's unacceptable. Right, pink washing or yeah. lavender washing of right. the Israeli right. state, right. similarly right. with right. the U.S. Right. as right. well, right. Right. Mm-hmm. right? So I think there are ways for us to think about, and, and it exists, I'm not talking about something that is wishful thinking, Right. that the society that produced Ahad Tamimi produced a thousand other Ahad Tamimi day in and day out, we know the story of Ahad but there are stories of over 300 Palestinian children in prison today and all the time, there are stories of Palestinian women and men there are stories of Palestinian queers who refuse to be co opted into the Israeli military uh, apparatus or become informers mm-hmm. under threats of mm-hmm. exposure or whatever. We see these things every single We see the little resistances and we see the big resistances. And I think it's really important to kind of keep that in mind, not because we have a, a utopian sense that people will be victorious, because people do get victorious. Because right. we do see examples of victories. Some of them are small, some of them are large. But we see through the path of history that these things do happen. So I do think that there is cause for us to be optimistic. It's hard, it's not easy, and I'm not saying it's easy and so on. But there is cause to be optimistic that it is It is all these things that if we look at the resistances, and we don't just look at defeatists, accent but it's also it depends what's your goal right at the end of the day what are you trying to accomplish what is your project why are you doing what are you doing right especially I'm talking about education and Mm -hmm. pedagogy and scholarship why we're doing what we're doing to what end Mm -hmm. and if people want to say okay I am doing it only to advance my own career and because I want to make more money and I want to have better it's fine say so do not claim me then Mm -hmm. But if you want to claim the movement and you want to claim the community, you have a responsibility. Right. So then, if you're doing that, you cannot be going around justifying oppression and making it functional yes. and normalizing it and reproducing the status quo, challenge the status quo. Mm-hmm. There is, there isn't an option for that. And there are enough people who are resisting day in and day out every single day. That's why all these struggles are alive. I mean, they wouldn't be alive if people were not struggling. Mm-hmm. They would have gone away. Mm-hmm. Everybody would be oppressed, and we'll have the handmade stale. Right. Right, mm-hmm. But that's not what we have. We do have all these struggles common on, which is evidence that prove that people are resisting. Mm-hmm. If that is the case, we make a choice. Right. Do we join them or do we put obstacles in their ways? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really, it's, this is what it boils down to. And, and it is an individual, it's a collective and a communal choice. Right. And people make these choices. And we as scholars, because the academy encourages individuals, career we as scholars make these choices and people choose to not do that okay fine, I mm-hmm. the power to them not all the power, some of the power Maybe mm-hmm. we don't want to give them the power <laughs> but, but we make choices so I think, I really do think that it is, optimism is not a utopian I mean look, Palestinians over 100 years, they're still standing look right. mm-hmm. what they at Standing Rock Mm-hmm. Look at all the, the statues that are coming down. I mean, and we have Trump in the White House. I mean, it's a very difficult struggle, and right. people are still struggling. Right. And they say they're still standing, and so there is something worth living for and doing. That's so beautiful.
0: Well, I know we covered so many topics in closing. Would you want to follow up on or elaborate on anything we've gotten into so far? I just would like
2: people to kind of stay, keep us in mind and and remember what we are doing and uh, support uh, Ahmed programs. Look out, check out our website, check out our Facebook page. Thank you for your listeners. Thank you for doing what you are doing. This is really amazing. Mm. So
0: thank you so much. Well, I'll be sure to link to all of those websites um, and attach those files so that people can learn more about everything you're doing. Thank you again, sincerely, so much for the work that you do and for your time awesome. and energy tonight. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you for it. persisting. Please do feel free to check out the Ahmed Studies program at SFSU and the teach in happening this week.
1: Um, Freedom
0: is out. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email LiberationSpring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out LiberationSpring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervascio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. freedom is ours.
1: Yeah. Freedom is ours.